This is Salt and Spine. I see baking as a kind of social movement. It's really happening worldwide. It's certainly been going on for a long time in the U.S., but Europe is unique in that you have these highly, highly rooted traditions that go by country, that go by region, that have been shaped very much by the 21st century. Hi there, I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, Stories Behind Cookbooks. You're tuning in for a special episode. It's the 2022 Baking Month. All of December, we're celebrating some of the year's best baking books with a handful of author interviews, dozens of featured recipes, excerpts, and more. Make sure you're subscribed to our Substack to get it all. And today's Baking Month guest is Laurel Cretophilia. Laurel is a self-taught American baker who, after studying in France, opened her Jewish New York-style bagel shop, Fine Bagels, in Berlin in 2013. And now she's just published her first book, New European Baking. With 99 recipes and lessons in classic European baking, from tarts to perfect croissants, Laurel guides home bakers through both sweet and savory favorites, coupled with profiles of compelling European bakers and a good dose of history sprinkled throughout, from Paris to Madrid, Lisbon to Copenhagen. As luck would have it, our producer, Clea Worster, is also in Berlin and hopped over to meet Laurel for today's Baking Month conversation. Hi there, Clea Worster here. Today's episode, as Brian said, is a little bit different than normal. I got to meet Laurel in her cafe in Berlin, so you might hear the sounds of a fire truck going down the street, some employees closing up the cafe after the day ended, and that's also why the introduction sounds a little bit different than usual. But we'll just go ahead and jump right in. Let's start way back in Boston, where you grew up, right? Mm -hmm. What kind of a role did food play in your life growing up? Ooh, I suppose I am the child of a single mother. So there were a lot of grilled cheeses, uh, mac and cheese from the box. But then... I also spent an enormous amount of time with my grandparents, who actually my grandmother was a real like working woman in the 1950s, 1960s. And so she was all about convenience foods too. So she taught me how to make a cake in the microwave from a packet mix. (laughs) I know this isn't going where you hoped it would go. No, I think... Uh, so, part of it. So, so yeah, there were definitely a lot of furs and pizzas, but then for holidays, stuff like that, we would always come together over something very traditional and, you know, a lot, a lot of matzo ball soup, that kind of thing. Um, we would roll out kreplach by hand for hours. So, yeah, very contrasting kind of labor-intensive for special occasions, Mm -hmm. and then, hey, do you know you can make lemonade from a powder? (laughs) If that makes sense. Yeah, and do you have a big family, or...? I have a pretty small family. It's, it's, um... I have one brother, um... Grandparents, a couple cousins, that kind of thing. We're not a huge family. Gotcha, okay. And then we're going to take a leap... Mm-hmm. So going all the way through your childhood. Yeah. <laughs> um, you studied physics. 
How did that, how did you get from there to here? <laughs> it's a big leap, it seems you, like. You studied physics. How the hell did that happen? Um, <laughs> I was at a bachelorette party this week, actually, and I was completely drunk, and somehow I brought this up, and I, I just saw many, many drunk jaws dropping, going, I never knew this about you, Laurel, in 10 years. <laughs> So my mother is a biology teacher. Uh, I was raised to be a big old nerd, not very popular in, in school, had my friends, but definitely was, say, eating lunch in the physics classroom. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah like that's, <laughs> that's kind of where I was at. And so I just had this posse of very wonderful nerdy boys when I was a teenager and I wanted to do what they did because they were the nicest people to me and so that's kind of how I wound up on this math and physics like super stem track and yeah I was the only girl in our AP physics class and then I was the only woman in my college physics program that's crazy yeah, I hope this is, I hope it's different now, but this wasn't, this wasn't that long ago. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, we had good times. We had good times. There were, there were land parties. There were land parties. There was Mountain Dew. There was pizza. But I want to tell you something. I think, no, I would be exaggerating if I said this. I got a lot of invitations to the prom. I might not have been that popular, but you better believe I was the only girl who <laughs> talked to those guys. So, and well, and vice versa. But uh, <laughs> anyways, it all worked out in the end. And yeah, I went, I went and I studied physics. I thought it was fascinating. I still do. But after doing research mm -hmm. when I, when I was in college and seeing how isolating this kind of hard science in a lab setting can be, I fled for my life because I, I said, I don't really want to be this alone mm -hmm. um, and not see the sunlight all day long. I just disclaimer, I was in an optics lab, so there's okay. no windows. I was mostly driven away by the window situation, but I knew I wanted to do something where I could interact with people yeah so I, mean, I left it you went pretty far away from home if if my sources are correct what were you doing for before you ended up in Berlin oh before I ended up in Berlin I had a boyfriend who was going to film school in Prague so I was there for a while keeping him company but I had gone in college to Nepal mm -hmm. um it's one of these, you know, on a volunteer program, and we can talk about the problematic parts of, of that. But I met so many wonderful people and really liked the country. And so I wound up moving back there for about a year. And from there, I was planning on staying. But a friend of mine was running this underground art space in Prague. It was 
really, it was in a basement. Um, and this was actually someone I know from Boston. There were no bathrooms. There was no running water. So when I say underground, it was, it was both literally and figuratively underground. Okay. Uh, but there were events like three nights a week, whether it was theater or bands would come. And she said, well, I'm going away. Why don't you take my room for five weeks, run the bar, and then I'll come back and you go back to Kathmandu. Okay. Uh, because I was looking for a vacation and mm-hmm. I thought maybe I'll go to Europe and just eat some good cheese, <laughs> which was just a stupid thing to think because like at this point in time, you just couldn't get good cheese in Kathmandu. And mm-hmm. why I went to Prague then, I have no idea because there isn't very good cheese in Prague. Yeah, it's not the um, first thing that comes to mind. <laughs> I know, I was just but, craving cheese. I don't know, and I said Europe, cheese, whatever. <laughs> and because I had I had lived there before with this boyfriend, I knew the city, mm-hmm. and it was very appealing to me to go back into this familiar place, spend about a month, do a little work, and go back. And yeah, I... I stayed. I wound up staying. (laughs) Before that, had you had any experience working in like a bar or a restaurant or was that kind of your first food industry? Oh, no, I've worked. I've worked in a million cafes. Okay. Yeah. And cafes and grocery stores. Those are my specialties. (laughs) Those are good spots. I, I mean, I'll be honest. I like working in a cafe. I like doing coffee. Grocery store checkout is my true passion maybe i'm not serious about a lot of things but i am kind of serious about that i for whatever reason like that level of human interaction and chatting Mm. with people and seeing them at that point in their day i always loved it and yeah um i'm not yeah i'm not joking with that and i'm always surprised when people bring up you know working in a grocery store is some kind of hell because i always really enjoyed it yeah, I've never, I've never thought about it that like that as kind of this like intimate interaction and like one of the busiest parts of someone's day or a part of the day that can be hard or really mm-hmm. joyful depending on who you are and why you're at the grocery store. Um, but yeah, that's yeah. I, I used to I would come up with a joke. I would either come up with a joke or I would find a joke and I would see how many people I could get to respond to it in a day. (laughs) Sometimes it's too much of a rush, but, you know, someone comes in with 400 bucks worth of groceries. You're going to be there together for a while. Yeah. And I loved that. Like, I can tell them a story and let's see how they respond. Mm -hmm. Are they going to think this is funny? Are they going to think it's stupid? Are they going to roll their eyes? And it's, I guess it's like having an audience all day. (laughs) (laughs) You should have been a performer, (laughs) a comedian. I that see that would make my voice shake, but you know, from the safety of the cash register, I was good. And in Kathmandu, were you work? You working at an NGO, or what were you doing there? That's yeah, I, I was working at an NGO. Okay, yeah. Um, how did you like it? I loved it over there. I did some fundraising stuff. I did volunteer trainings. I organized lectures. I just did a little of everything and was just piecing together ways to live over there mm-hmm. and so trained as a seamstress while I was at Whoa. it early in the morning <laughs> <It's> like, 
I don't know. How many red flags about my personality are showing up right now? I think absolutely zero. <laughs> you sound like a very curious person who's like checking a lot of things out. But I was just wondering if you knew back then that you would end up writing a cookbook, that you would be a baker, that even, you know, that you would be so far from where you were born. Or if it kind of came together that way. I think... I w- I'm not surprised that I wound up so far from where I was born. Mm-hmm. I'm one of those total mass holes who, <laughs> for the entirety of my life in America, I barely left the state of Massachusetts. It's like sometimes you would go down to Rhode Island to buy a lottery ticket. Mm-hmm. Maybe you'd visit some family in New York, but that was it. But just the curiosity got to me. I love being places where I don't speak the language and I have to learn it. And I was always a very shy person. Mm -hmm. And maybe in a way I wanted to travel because I knew it forced me out of both a comfort zone and the methods I normally employed to avoid social interaction stuff. I just had to, and mm-hmm. I had to get over it all and, and embarrass myself every day. <laughs> but to this end that was so rewarding and joyful and having human connections and learning so much more. And I think it, it's really, I was very curious, but I also knew like I had to do something to get over all my social phobias and stuff. Yeah. You were in Prague, you were working in a bar, you were staying there just for five weeks and you ended up staying there much longer than that. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us why you stayed? First, I was trying to avoid a boy, Mm -hmm. right? Who's back in Kathmandu. So I delayed that because I didn't want to break up with him. So Mm -hmm. I said, well, if I never wind up in the same country as him, I never have to break up with him. (laughs) So avoidant. Very smart. From him, I met another boy and then I met (laughs) my husband. Mm -hmm. When I was 21 and I was in Prague with this boyfriend who was studying there, right? Mm -hmm. We lived down the street in a fairly random neighborhood from this little bar that was just so beautiful and vibrant and it had a bookstore in the back and we used to go there every night and we play chess and we would drink the most god-awful wine and then I would be sick on the sidewalk sometimes I was a messy person but I loved that place so much and we would even say to each other like imagine if we had something like this it's a dream within a dream and so those few years later, when I wound up there, a friend said they're looking for someone to work at this place. And I had it in my head. No, 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 no. I really have to get my life in order. I have to stop working service jobs. I have to get on track. But I said, okay, I'll just one more, one last customer facing kind of job. Mm-hmm. And then I met a guy who was going to be my boss. I had an interview and I fell in love. <laughs> and this probably sounds creepy, <laughs> but I, I did kind of hang around working there for no good reason other than 
I thought he was so cute and I hoped one day he would notice me. And it took six months, but I got in there. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you it know. It seemed to work out <laughs> pretty thir- well. 13 years later, there we go. <laughs> We're still married yeah. somehow. <laughs> I think that's less creepy and more romantic. Um, it's yeah. very kind of you. Like, no, I really... <laughs> <laughs> if, if you could read my diaries from that era luckily that's not what we do here on Salt Society. Maybe a more interesting podcast. Maybe we should start digging through the diaries of our authors. That sounds good. That sounds good. For next season. Um, And in Prague, you write in your cookbook that that's kind of where you started to fall in love with baking. Um, There's a beautiful piece written in the introduction about sort of the very, very early morning walking home from work and seeing what was going on in the bakeries. Um, yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about how baking kind of came in at that time? Yeah. I, first of all, I, I did give you this spiel about the convenience foods, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, we always baked at home and this was always something that I liked to do. And I did do, it wasn't Mm -hmm. like, I've never, made a loaf of bread in my life before. Uh, But I never considered it as something that I could do. Mm -hmm. Partially in the context of America, uh, my family really encouraged me to get an education and to put that to use in a very professional sense. And, you know, cafe jobs were just to make money, pay rent, and eventually you stop doing that and then you work in a lab or you're a teacher or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I secretly always wanted to go to culinary school and I I love working with my hands and I just didn't think it was something that, in a way, I was allowed to do, Mm -hmm. right? I studied physics and wouldn't that all be a waste? And in the end, I chalk that up to to the mistake of a Mm 17-year-old to ignore maybe the things I was good at to make everybody else happy. And so when I was in Prague and suddenly I'm completely outside of my normal professional system, I can't use my degree because the only thing I can say is one beer, two beers, three beers in check. <laughs> and I don't have the same qualifications. They're all different in Europe. Mm-hmm. And it made me start thinking, what can I do? And maybe I have to create something of my own. And and so at this time, I was working in this bar. It was really across town. And you would finish work about three, four in the morning and the night bus was terrible. It left once every 45 minutes and then it would stop in the middle of the city and you would have to just sit there and half (laughs) the people on it are asleep and maybe you walk half the way home. And so I would often just walk the whole way across the city and probably has this reputation as a hyper touristic place that that you can't walk on the streets because it's so crowded. But Mm -hmm. that's really just a small part of the city. 
And in a way, it's, it's quite amazing because people don't step off this certain little path. Yeah. If you know the sea and you know how to avoid it, you have all these medieval streets to yourself. And especially at these early hours and, and it, it's an almost windless city. There's very little wind. You're in this little river valley and there's fog and there's soft, funny lights and there's the cobblestones and it's it's otherworldly it's incredible there's yeah. do you know the bruce chatwin book oots Mm-mm. or maybe it's uts i don't know it's u-t-z okay and in it there's this beautiful line where they describe the city as being so quiet that you can hear the snowfall mm-hmm. and it it's so true so you know it, be walking back and stinking of beer and cigarettes and and kind of bar smells <laughs> and this bakery that I'm talking about in the book that I would walk past mm-hmm. is still there it looks exactly the same I dread the day when they change it but it's just a big window onto the street and there's a mixer and there's an oven and there's big men in all white clothes messing around with flour and it just smells warm coming out of it and I was always freezing and (laughs) and dirty and and I say in the book I was really jealous and I wanted to know how I got in there Mm -hmm. how it's funny because I described studying physics and for me it was this all-male environment and I was very much like, how do I get in there? Why? Mm -hmm. They're not the only ones that can do that. And I think I was a little the same with bakery. I was attracted to this also from a side of, well, I can prove you wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's good to have a healthy dose of that, I think, in most things we do. A little motivation. I think so. Yeah, yeah. And then, I mean, when you started baking professionally here Mm -hmm. in Berlin, it wasn't that you had planned, like, I'm going to open a bakery now. It it came about in sort of a, a difficult time. Why did you leap to baking, like, as a way to get out of where the situation that you were in? Right. So, like I said, my husband had this bar and this bookstore in Prague, and we still have the bookstore there. Mm-hmm. But after a couple of years, we decided, let's open another business in Berlin. Because Berlin is a much bigger city it's much more international and we thought that would be a really nice balance. It's about three hours drive between the places and we can open another bookstore and be here most of the time, but go back to Prague a lot. Sounds like a fantasy, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Because it is a fantasy (laughs) and we opened in absolutely the wrong neighborhood here. It's a busy, fun neighborhood, but it's, People don't go in and people don't go out. It's just Mm. the people who live in the district. And that's not good for a bookstore where you need new people every day. And so it wasn't working. And I hoped that I could drive some business towards us. Because this was also really when Amazon was picking up. Mm. And it was becoming more and more difficult. I... I'm currently optimistic that bookstores are a little like, say, record stores, right? If you survived this period of time, hopefully things will go more smoothly in the future Mm -hmm. because we are starting to become relics. Yeah. Uh, 
so I converted a storage closet in the bookstore into a kitchen. I don't know how I got past the health inspectors. <laughs> they were fine with it. I think they just saw it as, well, this is innocuous. No one's going to come. <laughs> but they approved it. I had a little home oven, a used Ikea kitchen in there, um, and she hid a big proofing refrigerator. That was the only ex- big expense we had mm. behind a bookcase. Uh, and... Yeah, started making bagels. <laughs> and it was a real, I, I mean, I guess it was one of those, well, if you don't know what to do, do what you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> and what you love and what you miss. And people started to come. And I feel like back in those days, I'm talking like it's 40 years ago, but it was about 10 years ago. Berlin was a little different. And yeah. we didn't have everything here. I feel like now... And I'm happy about this. Any kind of food, name it. I'll tell you where to go. But you could hype being like the only place with this product. Yeah. And that's kind of what happened. People started making this journey over and our finances started to get better. And I started to think that maybe this was a legitimate path for me to take Mm -hmm. because I really didn't have one at that point in time. I, Like I said, I've been too curious. I've done a lot of things, but not anything substantial that I felt like I could really see through. Mm -hmm. And to me, this was, this was it. Like I was finally doing something that people responded to. I felt happy with it. I felt very satisfied with the work. Yeah. Yeah. It it really changed a lot for me. Yeah. I was going to ask, how did it feel to, to finally be doing what you had wanted to be doing? For a long time, secretly. (laughs) Really good. (laughs) It felt so good. I felt a little guilty. I felt a little guilty that I don't know if I had wasted time getting to this point Mm. or that I hadn't trusted my instinct or that I was happy doing this and I knew I wasn't quite supposed to be. Mm -hmm. So So now we'll, we'll jump over to your book a little bit now that we're talking about your baking. The book is called New European Baking and it's organized in a very traditional way. It looks a lot like a lot of other pastry books, but it's also very unique, I would say, especially, um, I mean, you feature 11 different bakers. How did that idea come about to go, you know, just from being this traditional pastry book with really classic recipes and some that aren't so classic, but to being this, this kind of, I want to say like an homage to what you see European baking as and the people who represent that for you. Right. I would say I knew I had a book in me, mm-hmm. but what interested me the most about what's going on in Europe, it's, I see baking as a kind of social movement. It's really happening worldwide. It's certainly been going on for a long time in the U.S., but Europe is unique in that you have these highly, highly rooted traditions that go by country, that go by region, that have been shaped very much by the 21st century. And when I say that, I mean industrialization, I mean electricity, I mean (laughs) wars, I mean communism. And so even if you have these very different stories in every country, there is 
a kind of strictness to a lot of traditions mm -hmm. that I feel, or I don't feel, I've seen people really breaking through with their own creativity. And, and also when I talk about traditions, I, I'm also talking about who does this job mm -hmm. and how do they get to doing this job? And take France, for example. Okay. Well, the people who do this job are even, are either the male sons of bakers, right? Or they were put into a trade school because they're not academically inclined. It's this like default, even though it's mm -hmm. this beautiful profession. And then, you know, you have to be big and strong and able to stay up all night. So yeah. that just completely excludes women, yeah. <laughs> first of all. And, and that is changing. It's really, you do still have that, but you also have, say, a lot of women like me who are going into it from something else and taking their context and their experience and their travels and their creativity and doing things differently. Uh, and that is impacting something that was quite a rigid system. I mean, even, you know, the price of bread in France was state controlled until the 90s. <laughs> Right. So how can you really be creative if someone says, this is what you have to sell your baguette for? Mm -hmm. How can you really explore a lot of new flowers if someone says, this is what you have to, you know, this is your price yeah, limit. It's a hard limit. Here. And, and there were always these like, like the Poilin bakery and stuff, but that was a radical thing. And so now what you have is all different people in, in this bakery tradition who are reaching both back and forward, right? Mm -hmm. They're reaching back in terms of bringing back old methods and better grains and better flowers and long fermentations and that kind of craftsmanship. And then at the same time, there's a lot of stuff happening culturally mm -hmm. in, the, in that foodways are merging more than ever and uh, people are connecting outside of their own cultures. And so you get lots of interesting flavors and at the same time, all this quality. And so to me, that's what is going on over here. <laughs> and a big part of that is these individual bakers who are driving this, if you can call it a movement or social trend or whatever forward in exciting ways and different ways. Mm -hmm. uh, the bakers in the book are all doing fairly different projects. Some, you know, a lot of the values are shared in terms mm -hmm. of quality and how they work, but they all really have their own perspective and, and very much their own stories. How did they come to be a baker? And I don't know if you noticed, but they're all uh, bread bakers. Yeah. So <laughs> it's not... Well, it's not exclusively a bread book. Um, so I did my training in France. Mm -hmm. I went to a trade school there. Then I went to the Cordon Bleu. Then I staged all over the place. Right. And over there, as in most European countries, there's a big distinction between the pastry chef and the baker, mm -hmm. right? The bread baker. And But there is this point in the middle where you meet. And that's what you would call baker's pastry. So they're mm -hmm. more 
rustic tarts. There's viennoiserie, so like laminated pastries, so everything you would make croissants from. Mm -hmm. And so the book is really baker's pastry. It's a little more rustic. You're not going to see an eclair in there. (laughs) But um, that really interests me. Where do you see yourself in relation to these? You know, you, you feature these 11 bakers and you talk about this new European baking trend and... You mentioned a little bit how it started in America, but I'm wondering, like you, an American who spent a long time in Europe now and has become a baker here and, you know, maybe less American than you used to be or more. I don't know how it goes when you after a long time being somewhere. But I guess just how do you see yourself in your baking in relation to those big, longstanding traditions and this new movement that you're talking about? I guess I see myself as being part of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I hope I'm a part of it. Uh, <laughs> I would say so. <laughs> I, um, for me, what I do here is I'm, I'm doing like a very Jewish American baking, mm-hmm. uh, you know, bagels, challah, rugelach, that kind of thing. And from a cultural side, I think there's, I'm in Berlin, so it's always, I guess, a loaded thing to be doing Jewish baking in a city with this history. But I actually think this should be here. It was here. Mm -hmm. And it's important for me, even though I kind of accidentally found myself living here, to be putting my culture into this, the story of this city and... Um, the way we eat in 2022 Berlin. Yeah. Uh, And I think that's important for a lot of people and also doing things the old fashioned way. So, I mean, you can get a bagel in the States that's terrible. That's made really quickly. (laughs) That's like a big puffy bread roll. And that's not how I want to work. I want to do long fermentations and I, I want to use better flour and, and so I, I think in that way, I'm, I'm a part of it, both kind of trying to preserve culinary traditions Mm -hmm. and also move it forward and make this more ubiquitous over here. Yeah. And I think in a way you play a huge role in it just by writing this book, right? By calling attention to this big trend that we're seeing and kind of giving it a voice and giving those 11 bakers a voice too. I mean, some of them have now gone on to do (laughs) crazy things. Um, But I think that's a big part of what's happening here is speaking to it and you're doing that. But I'm wondering who do you see this book as being for? It's, it seems like it's not just for the home baker, but it is for the home baker too. Um, Yeah. Who did you write it for? I do see it as it's a practical baking course. Mm -hmm. Uh, so whether you want to do breads or brioches or learn how to make a croissant finally or a good flan, like there are the recipes and I really tried to break things down and give you a lot of tricks. My, uh, my editor hates me because I wrote so much, but I, I do believe that sometimes you have to be a little long-winded so that people really understand it. Yeah. That said, I want it to be also inspiration. 
for someone who might be considering changing their life, mm -hmm. doing something new, telling the stories of these people who found a way to live certain values and a certain craft and change their own lives in accordance with that. I, I think that speaks to a lot of people, even if you don't want to do that, it's an escapist <laughs> fantasy, right? Yeah. Um, and so I guess that's, that's who I think it's for uh, a whole lot of people. Yeah. I would give it to my teenage self. That's mm -hmm. what I would do. I would give it to my teenage self and I would say, stay out of the physics classroom. <laughs> you don't have to be there. <laughs> it's the bakery with the windows. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Where do you get your inspiration from when it comes to cookbooks? I, so this kind of goes back to being a bookseller because mm -hmm. I'm also a bookseller. Um, yeah. I like to collect vintage cookbooks. Mm. I love the funny language in them and the surprising combinations you'll see and what it says about how people were eating. And, mm -hmm. and I really love old baking books, you know, like jelly molds and <laughs> gross stuff like that. I, I don't know. I love it. I love it. The kind that has like three kind of color plate pictures in it and not a beautiful photo for everything and you know very often the best cookbooks don't have pictures yeah it's less exciting but so so we've got a whole bunch of those and if anything they're, they're comedy too <laughs> right <laughs> yeah yeah no I I know what you mean I've spent a lot of time looking at just really old stuff and being like isn't this bizarre that we like came from this type of cookbook to where we are now with the high gloss beautifully designed pages and I don't know yeah I I can agree that older cookbooks are so charming <laughs> but so I, I I do love the cookbook as the coffee table book yeah. you know I I love that I love that my favorite cookbook from the last like 10 years mm -hmm. is not written by a chef Mm -hmm. or a baker or anything. Do you know who Anne Applebaum is? I don't. She's an economist and a okay. political scientist. I think those are the right designations for her. And she writes heavily about um, Eastern European politics and just a brilliant mind. But then she also wrote this Polish cookbook. Um, I believe her husband is Polish. Um, it's, I believe it's called From a Polish Country House Kitchen. And it is the most wonderful Anglophone compendium of Polish cookery that both the recipes are great, the photos are great, uh, the context is amazing because you know this is someone who knows the history and the politics and all of that yeah and so I have that in my in my kitchen and I really love it <laughs> I don't know and I, I feel like it flew a little under the radar I don't think it was a huge hit I could be wrong but I love it yeah, it so. sounds wonderful I'm gonna go find a copy right after this yeah if you ever um, want to make like a sour soup 
Those are, yeah. You know, when you just got a hankering for a sour soup. Like a good Jurek. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us on Salt and Spine and for hosting us in your wonderful shop. Thank you for having me. And that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can find bonus content from today's show and all of our episodes on our Substack, which you can find at saltandspine.substack.com. For just a few dollars a month, you'll find tons of exclusive and bonus content from recipes, cookbook excerpts, essays, and more. Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe wherever you're listening. We also love to see your ratings on Apple Podcasts. Our show today was produced by me, Brian Hogan-Stewart, and our producer, Cleo Worcester. Our kitchen correspondent is Sarah Varney. The Salt and Spine original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Salt and Spine is typically recorded at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen is now offering both digital and in-person classes for home cooks. You can find out more at civickitchensf.com. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonimo, and the Civic Kitchen team, to Edible San Francisco, to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books, and to Monique Lamas at Hardcover Cook. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love. Thank you.